Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor and Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment, so special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello, and welcome from downtown Minneapolis. This is the Identity Paradox. I'm your host, Carlos Gallego. And before I introduce today's guest and topic, I just want to say something briefly about potential background noise here you might be, you might be hearing. Uh, the city has... Uh, torn up the crosswalk across from the apartment building where I live and covered it up with uh, giant metal plates that uh, function like metal drums at night, especially when pickup trucks are driving over them at 60 miles per hour, which the city doesn't really care about because I called and asked and uh, they don't even know that the construction is taking place. So uh, just a brief note for those of you that don't live in urban areas, especially in uh, what are considered commercial slash residential downtown areas, uh, the city cares little about your sleep health. Uh, and so I apologize for any background noise. It's going on all night and all day. Uh, luckily, the Thanksgiving holiday break. I don't know if it counts as Thanksgiving anymore. I think it's now it's the Black Friday break. As soon as Thanksgiving is over, it's like a Black Friday weekend. So uh, hopefully the shoppers are not out about and they're doing a lot of cyber shopping. But if you do hear the background noise, I apologize for that. Today's guest uh, is Stephen Grigsby. He is an attorney. He uh, got his uh, law degree from Georgetown Law School, uh, where he went on to practice as a assistant district attorney with uh, uh, at, in Brooklyn uh, with the uh, prosecutor's office there. So he has some prosecutorial, I believe I pronounced that correctly, uh, experience. Uh, and then he moved to Minnesota, as those of us that move from out of state to uh, Minnesota find that we need to adapt. So Stephen went ahead and did his version of that. And for the last 23 years has been practicing criminal defense uh, law here in the state of Minnesota. Is that correct, Stephen? Did I get that accurate? Yes, you did. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. I invited Stephen uh, because I've, uh, I know him personally, and I find him to be a very intelligent uh, individual overall. And he's one of the few lawyers that I know in the state of Minnesota, but I know that he's more than qualified to speak about today's uh, general episode topic, which is... Uh, I would say the U.S. legal system and its relationship to things like race, racism, and potentially totalitarian fascist vigilante politics. Uh, and I'm, of course, talking about the three major cases that took place, not took place, but uh, came to a conclusion in the last two weeks. Uh, the lawsuit, the civil lawsuit in Charlottesville over the Unite the Right rally that took place in 2017 that resulted in the death of Heather Heyer. Uh, the Ahmad Aubrey case that uh, just got uh, finally resolved in Georgia, where uh, Arbery was uh, pursued and shot dead uh, by three white men who found his mere presence in their suburban area to be enough of a threat to warrant uh, lethal force. And we'll talk about the 
details around that briefly. And then finally, the uh, most recent case, uh, I believe the most recent, or at least one of the most, the case that is gaining the most attention, especially politically across the US right now, is the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case, where uh, Rittenhouse, who uh, shot, uh, and shot and killed two men, injuring a third, uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was found not guilty on uh, all counts uh, of murder, uh, including other charges like uh, weapons charges. So we'll talk about the nuances of those three cases because I'm having a hard time being as optimistic as some people are being regarding the uh, verdicts around these three cases and or uh, pessimistic along lines that have less to do with the law uh, the legal system in the United States and more to do with the politics surrounding the legal system in the United States. And more importantly, and I'm, I'm sharing this with Stephen, uh, the main topic for me today is essentially, is the legal system working? President Biden was very quick to come out publicly after the Rittenhouse uh, verdict and tell the United States that the legal system is working and uh, no further protests are needed along, that, uh, along those lines. Uh, and so I want to examine the, uh, shall we say, accuracy of President Biden's statement that the legal system in this country is working. So along those lines, uh, I'd like to start, if uh, you don't mind, um, Stephen, talking about Charlottesville, uh, which is a civil lawsuit, which is different from a criminal uh, case. If I'm just going to give a brief background for uh, our listeners or viewers, uh, the jury in this case found that white nationalists and white supremacists engaged in conspiracy to intimidate, harass, and harm in advance of the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Among the guilty parties are Richard Spencer, who uh, coined the term alt-right, uh, Jason Kessler, who organized the rally, and Christopher Cantwell, who is uh, popularly known as the crying Nazi, who's actually a violent thug uh, in real life and uh, a misogynist, but uh, nevertheless is now known as a crying Nazi because he famously recorded himself uh, crying uh, because there was a search warrant uh, for his arrest, and he was afraid that the cops were going to shoot and kill him. Uh, but they did not, of course, because he's Christopher Cantwell and uh, they don't seem to shoot at those kind of people. The jury awarded $500,000 in punitive damages against all 12 defendants uh, and $1 million against five white nationalist organizations on the conspiracy count for a total of over $26 million in damages. So the jury's verdict has been celebrated as a victory against racists and fascists, and I'm not completely disagreeing uh, with that viewpoint. I'm simply curbing my own enthusiasm by questioning why this had to be a civil suit victory uh, as opposed to a criminal one. Uh, and on that note, I just want to highlight the fact that the jury was deadlocked and could not reach a verdict on two federal conspiracy charges. Uh, I believe they're known as the KKK law that date back to the late 19th century. The jury could not agree on two federal conspiracy counts. One, whether the defendants had engaged in a conspiracy to commit racial violence and whether the defendants knew of such a conspiracy and failed to prevent it. Uh, both counts are based on federal, rights civil, on federal civil rights law and the jury informed the judge that they could not think they could, that they did not think they could reach a unanimous verdict on either count of federal conspiracy. So it seems that the only reason Charlottesville and the verdict around that uh, awful uh, Unite the Right rally was a victory is because it happened in the state of Virginia. So the defendants in this case were found guilty 
and are now you know basically uh, responsible for over 26 million dollars in, in penalties owed to uh, the plaintiffs only because this happened in Virginia. And so they were able to apply Virginia law, which to me seems like a loophole because it happened in that state. Had it happened in another state, we, we may not be celebrating a victory uh, over the white nationalists and fascists that organized the Unite the Right rally. So, uh, and that's the federal conspiracy charge that the jury themselves uh, confessed they could not reach an agreement on. And my understanding is that there's going to be a retrial uh, and they're going to bring the defendants back to court to retry them on those two federal uh, conspiracy charges. So, Stephen, my first question regarding this is that I know that a federal conspiracy charge, it's my understanding at least, that a federal conspiracy charge requires uh, evidence that is beyond all reasonable doubt, whereas a civil suit only requires a preponderance of the evidence. So my first question is, why and how does a preponderance of evidence not qualify as beyond all reasonable doubt? What's the difference between a preponderance of evidence and evidence that is beyond all reasonable doubt? Uh, it, you know, it, it, it seems like it may be self-evident, uh, but, it, but it's really not. Um, the first reason is that beyond all reasonable doubt is used only in those things where there is an irrevocable dimension of your humanity that can be revoked by the government uh, imprisonment. Uh, that's be has become since 1970 constitutionally mandated in any criminal trial where any liberty is at stake. Uh, preponderance of the evidence is reflects simply the fact that there are two equal people who wish to settle a dispute in court. Any the, the, the one with more evidence wins. Uh, the, uh, the alternative term for uh, preponderance is simply the greater weight, and it means exactly that literally any greater weight, the party wins. So, but then the question of course, is what does proof beyond a reasonable doubt? And I have argued this in probably a um, hundred jury trials uh, in some way. Uh, and the truth is, is that uh, there isn't any precise calculus as to the greater weight. Uh, e e even if you accept that in formulating the greater weight, uh, there's, there's, you know, people are mediating their experience with their own subjective uh, account of their experience. So, so there is a dimension of incalculability to it, but it, it just beyond a reasonable doubt, I argue, ultimately is simply that kind of proof that you would need. Uh, this is the court's instruction, but this is the essence of the argument. There is no better one than the kind of proof you would need, uh, need to act with great confidence in the most important of affairs. That's what it means. What what percentage? I don't think it translates into a percentage. But anyway, that's sort of the background between the two. A civil suit merely asks for a judgment, a monetary judgment, and a criminal suit asks for imprisonment by definition. So I'm just curious, as in terms of the conspiracy charges, it seems like the jury was more comfortable with the Virginia law and very obviously deadlocked and uh, split as far as the uh, federal conspiracy charges. Does federal conspiracy civil lawsuit require more evidence simply because it's federal? And so they were uh, the jury was able to realize that through Virginia law, they could apply uh, those statutes and find the defendants guilty, but only based on the state law and not the federal law? 
No, no. I mean, unless there is something unique to, to that particular charge of conspiracy, uh, as it differs between the two jurisdictions you mentioned, no, there wouldn't be anything uh, unusual. Can you repeat just the last part of your question again? Yeah, I was just wondering why it is easier to find the defendant guilty under Virginia okay. law than federal law, if it's the same, in many cases, the same counts, the same conspiracy charges. Correct. Well, yes. So there would be a difference in elements between the two. There would not be a difference in the amount of evidence that either side would require. Hmm. Federal and, 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 and does, not, does not imply anything more that it simply is a legitimate enactment of, of a power that Congress has to articulate a law. Uh, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything more than that. The fact that it seems sort of more severe and serious is, is mainly because it has limited jurisdiction. It has fewer matters uh, and they also have a disproportionate uh, national consequence. But no, there's no there's no difference. So the 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 difference in the jury would have been found then between the ease of proof of the different elements between the two uh, um, jurisdictions uh, case law. So basically the jury said we can find them guilty with preponderance, but we can't necessarily, we can't agree that we can find them guilty in terms of beyond reasonable doubt. Only in a criminal case would proof beyond a reasonable doubt required in, in whether it's a federal conspiracy okay. charge or a state conspiracy civil charge, it would still be the preponderance. Okay. So this because this wasn't a criminal case, it's a civil case. That is the universal standard in all Anglo-American jurisdictions for for precise uh, reasons uh, with respect to uh, equality before the law. Okay. So then I'm going to switch it a little bit from the civil to criminal because we know that the criminal charges were filed against uh, James Alex Fields Jr. for uh, murdering Heather Heyer. Uh, using his vehicle as a weapon. Those were the only criminal charges, is my understanding, that were brought forth uh, at the United Right rally. And no conspiracy charges, criminal conspiracy charges, were brought against any of the organizers. It took these defendants filing a civil lawsuit in order to call attention to the fact that there was an organized conspiracy here to engage in essentially a hateful uh, rally that was meant to instigate violence against people that, you know, as the chance himself said, uh, were not necessarily, were not white in any kind of uh, nationalist or identitarian way. So my question is, or my concern is that since it's a civil lawsuit and it's basically a monetary punishment that is being, uh, you know, dished out to the defendants in this case, I'm concerned that one of the messages that could be sent is that if you're interested in engaging in a similar type of rally and event and uh do and don't have any monetary wealth to risk because if you do get sued, there's nothing they can take from you. Uh, that the only avenue available to pursue organizers and leaders that kind of manufacture these events, if you will, uh, through chats and through you know private conversations, essentially, and make it public in this in in the way that the Tiki Torch Rally was very public and the events that ensued thereafter were very public. A lot of this is private. It's organized behind the scenes. They know what they're doing. This came up in court as a preponderance of evidence, and yet there are no criminal charges against those individuals. It's, it's purely uh, monetary. So does this is it possible that this could be sending a message to people who are not afraid of being uh, sued uh, because they have no 
financial wealth to risk that they can engage in these types of public acts without any necessarily criminal consequence? I mean, the, the, the simple answer is absolutely. This is the purpose of not criminalizing uh, what you just described. Now, it may not merely be a function of pragmatism about sending a message. There, uh, there are constitutional limitations about what, what kind of behavior can be criminalized and particularly uh, becomes acute with, with respect to uh, openly um, political speech. Uh, so it's there's very very there, 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 in other words a, a federal statute would have a very hard time proving anything other than uh, a simple criminal conspiracy without any ideological content and the argument that you just recited uh, really makes uh, the ideological content central to the uh, mechanism of causation it originates in hate somewhere outside the jurisdiction. It marshals a bunch of, mobilizes and marshals a bunch of people and concentrates them for the purpose of engaging in, you know, agitated, boisterous conduct and foreseeably somebody dies. That describes a civil suit, foreseeably. In a criminal case, you'd have, you'd have, to, you'd have to show they conspired to uh, drive somebody over, that they planned it, that they, uh, without, without doing that, uh, you would run, you run afoul of constitutional limitations. But there's no question it sends exactly that message that if you do this, you'll simply face a probably uncollectible judgment. And by just to clarify for by uncollectible judgment, you're talking about going after people and suing them for money that they don't have, essentially. Correct. Um, I can't remember which president it was when he was informed that the uh, Supreme Court has uh, issued an order that prevented him from doing something he wanted to do. He says, I don't care, make them enforce it. So <laughs> the whole point is the court, well, the court doesn't enforce it. The court just gives somebody a piece of paper that they can hang on their wall and says that you owe them something. That's it. It's the, the court is limited to issuing an order. So just as, as someone who's well-versed in the law, do you think that the Charlottesville verdict is a victory politically or is it a moral victory in terms of there's some way that you can go after people like at least Richard Spencer, who we know does have money? I, I think it is utterly empty. Care to elaborate? It's just I don't think it has any meaning whatsoever. A civil suit uh, in, in, in this is, is, is literally without any kind of ideological dressing up a dispute about a debt. That's it. This is not interesting material. The fact that it involved death and something else, that, that's one thing. But the idea, uh, the more sinister uh, uh, element of even civil suits, why it's not a victory, is because you've essentially bought a human life. And you said we've had a fair exchange. The system works. Justice has been achieved. Right. As Biden would say, the system worked. The system works. Yeah. You lost a life and you had some money. Why, why would you complain about this? Yeah. Which is why corporations can get away with this kind of stuff, because people die at their hands all the time. And as people, they can be held liable uh, or criminally liable, but you, you can sue them for money, but they're not going to prison. Oh, but far worse than that, they're the ones that have lobbied to create the laws 
that give civil penalties to all the damage that they do. With no criminal consequence. And, and, and you're right. I mean, that's the thing that upsets me about this being an empty gesture. And I agree with you. This is a glorified version of the people's court around an extremely dangerous ideological divide that is taking over the country at this point. And no one wants to address that in terms of criminality. We keep addressing it in terms of its morality and its ethics and its appropriateness. But we don't, it's very few people are coming out and calling it this should be, this should be held criminally accountable. I think that's what's happening around the January 6th investigation. That's taking a long time. But I think, as Dave Newart, my previous guest, put it, they're taking their time because they want to make sure they have all their dot, you know, their I's dotted and T's crossed because bringing these charges against these groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and some of the major, in some cases, politicians that were involved with the organizing around the J6 storming of the Capitol, uh, those will be criminal and we might see some sedition charges against some of these groups in addition to things like conspiracy and potentially even treason. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's entirely possible, uh, but I think that there's a lesson to be you know, told here about what we expect of a society that resolves its disputes with courts almost exclusively as the remedy. And, and, and not only disputes, but treating real life situations as if they were merely disputes over money. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think that, 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 I mean, oftentimes one, one's in, inclination is to say, you know, there's some dangerous things happen, let's criminalize it. That expands your bureaucracy and it expands an extraordinarily unmasterable power in the office of the prosecutor and the institution of accusation. And it doesn't solve a lot of problems, even if you think you have the right laws in place and you've been careful and inclusive, uh, you end up enlarging uh, the power of, of the prosecutor. And, and, and that is as, as has the same authoritarian uh, problems as the thing that uh, they describe that happened in Charlottesville. I can see that. So you have to be careful with the laws that you want to implement in order to go after your opponents, because those same laws can come back and be used against you. Correct, because they're expressed in, 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 in the abstract. They're expressed as principles. Somebody who does this, regardless of the circumstances, is guilty. And it ignores the actual position from which people act in our society. Which in many ways is allowing politicians and pundits right now to uh, create a false equivalent, equivalency between fascists that are organizing things like the Unite the Right rally and anti-fascists who are trying to fight those people and politicians basically saying both sides are anarchists and, you know, violent, you know, protesters, et cetera, and extremists, and basically are just uh, two sides of the same coin, when in reality, a lot of people that have been mobilized to be anti-fascists are doing it in order to keep things like the KKK from resurfacing in their communities. And that is being uh, discussed as being equally extremist in the tr in the same spirit of Charlottesville and what happened there. Yeah, yeah. I just the the I think the important um, uh, lesson is that the attempt to simply expand the jurisdiction of things that that suddenly become criminal uh, can only be done in such blunt terms that they really have no particular. Uh, a target. They're just simply the instruments of the people whose election cycle has put them in charge. And I know we're not, at least I'm not an expert in this, but I know that laws in other countries that, uh, you know, self-identify as democratic like ours uh, have different laws. For example, in Germany, freedom of speech is 
controlled there in order to disallow the reemergence of Nazism. For example, you cannot give a kind of Third Reich Nazi salute because that is criminalized. That is considered a that that political ideology is considered basically criminal in places like Germany. Therefore, you cannot publicly uh, promote that ideology and not be found criminally guilty of associating yourself with that ideology. It can't. It's not a joke. It's not a meme. It's not for lulls. It is dangerous, and then it's considered dangerous. Do you consider that to be extremist in the case of Germany? Well, I mean, I, 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 with uh, France, Holocaust denial is actually a crime too. Uh, and I looked at that, and um, and I see what it is. It's an attempt to sort of have it both ways. Here we have freedom of speech, egalite, liberté, fraternité, mm-hmm. and they and they simply uh, will not permit freedom of speech. They have no justifiable reason for it. If in fact, if freedom of speech is the most important thing. Then, then even fascism is is uh, toleration of fascism is worth that freedom. But but they don't do it that way, and they try to have it both ways because they would be logic required to regulate a lot more than speech if they went about this fairly. Uh, they would regulate the conditions that give rise to that kind of ideology. Because let's face it, it's not real ideology. No adult mature mind grasps that with any kind of acuity or rigor at all. It is not ideology, it's performativity. It is an act, it is like yelling fire. All it does is signal to other people membership in the group. It's perfect, there's a perfectly good reason to ban it. But you can't talk about uh, freedom of speech and all those principles that are related to the economic mechanisms of society. You can't have it both ways. And unfortunately, that's what Germany does. And they say, well, you know, in the case of the Holocaust, you you should understand us, uh, we had a very, you know, a direct role and we uh, are responsible. And so you can excuse us. No, I, I, I can excuse that, but I can't excuse then the, the balance of your principles that aren't that. Anyway, that's my take on it. No, no, it's very interesting because I think it applies equally to this country. And it's a reason why we're having a lot of the debates we're having around free speech, because you're right, we're, we want to have it both ways. We want to silence certain versions of speech and promote others. And then still claim that we have this almost absolutist freedom of speech, which we never did have an absolute freedom of speech, which is why you can't say bomb at the airport. And we don't talk about the social contract and the the sacrifices that it requires to be a part of society in terms of some of your freedoms are going to have to be sacrificed in exchange for the supposed security and safety and order that you're supposed to receive in exchange for the sacrifice of those uh, freedoms, or at least certain freedoms. Do you know, by the way, in in what kind of case that the majority of, at least in Minnesota, precedential cases about freedom of speech have come up in? What would you guess? I would say religious. Not at all. In disorderly conduct charge. The disorderly conduct statute was used throughout the 60s because it says you can't engage in obscene, lewd, and, and behavior like that upsets people. And so they, they, somebody finally appealed this, and it was a young girl that was accused of giving the cop the finger, and the cop arrested her, and they had to torture the statute. So what they did is they left the statute as it was, but said, let's, let's uh, us judges, let, let us judges understand what this really means, is that um, uh, this is an exception we're making here. Uh, uh, and, and the statute doesn't really mean that. It means 
that you can you can give the finger, but we'll keep the other uh, vague language in there. And the result is it it they arrest thousands of people, innocent people, for an unconstitutional retention of language, and then the courts say yes. Oh, hey, you, you it doesn't mean that we said that last time. Wow, well, that's, that's that's how it's used, and it's still that way as we speak today. And police are still arresting people for precisely those unconstitutional reasons. Now, that's one issue. Second issue is that they've had a chance to talk about saying bomb in a in in a in the airport. And other things. They have limited now disorderly conduct when it's any speech at all to a performative to they call fighting words. It's not a very not a very good term because it doesn't really define, but fighting words has to be an act. When I when I raise my fist to somebody, I, I'm not saying anything except communicating the intent to fight. It's an act in itself through its very performance. So they've limited it uh, to that. Um uh, but the police are still arresting people for the most part on, uh, for all those other reasons, which are unconstitutional. But anyway, then, the, 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 this may finish this last point. The fundamental point is, is that they have narrowed it from all of that superfluous language down to the only speech is one that by its utterance performs an act. Interesting. So they're, they're basically assuming that there has to be some intentionality behind the speech. There has to be some semblance of an act to be performed, or it is in and of itself an act. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's, 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 it's no, it is, you simply remove the semantic content. You, you, you simply treat it like an act. And if somebody enacts it through volubly, through their vocal cords, then we assess what did this do? Is it the signal, is it a signal as a, as a call to arms to threaten an attack? Does it endanger people by signaling emergency leave in a fire? Uh, these aren't, this is, there's no, there's no truth underlying empirical truth. It's a signal. That's why it's an act. Any speech, contrarily, that has any intelligibility to it, you, you're allowed to express. Okay. So that sounds like it's pretty absolute in terms of uh, freedom of speech to some degree. I mean... Correct. But the Court of Appeals in, 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 in parochial jurisdictions like Minnesota simply don't have enough experience with these issues. Not I remember one of my first appeals was a disorderly conduct where my client had called a referee at his son's soccer game an asshole in public and they arrested him. And he came to me after he had been convicted representing himself and I appealed it. And I argued that this, this was simply obscene. It was lewd. Uh, but it wasn't a crime. It's vulgar, but we're not, we're not, this is not manners. This is something that the content of which has to immediately endanger or, or, you know, impair somebody. And I, as I was doing it, the Harvard educated um, court of appeals judge, Bruce Willis, named after the actor, well, a few years older, he said to me in the middle of it, Mr. Grigsby, the court of the court is aware of the content of your client's remarks. Would you please stop repeating them in this court? And 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 uh, rebuked me for the overuse, and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to lose now," and I did. Because so you said it, the word "asshole" way too much on uh, in the courtroom, right? Basically. Well, yeah, just that it's just that the, the ultimate issue was is that if it's that clear what's going on, this is what's going on. The courts simply are not intelligent. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I'm getting to. It's hard for me to imagine what the primitive act behind calling someone an asshole is. What what the potential risk and dangers of calling someone that are right i mean it's it's simply a faulty logically 
faulty opinion that yeah. cannot be reconciled with binding superior precedent. The Mary Tyler's Moore state does not like profanity and therefore it is criminalized in certain cases, right? Right, and, and I can tell you that this man was uh, extremely fastidious because he liked to remind people that the uh, pronunciation of the English word E-R-R -R from error is not uh, error, but er. <laughs> he insisted on these stupid things like that. That's interesting because that, that's going to come up, I think, in the third case that we'll discuss. But just to move the discussion ahead to the uh, Ahmed Arbery case, uh, that one's very interesting. Uh, and just to give, again, uh, listeners and viewers a sense of what we're talking about in terms of background, uh, this week, literally, Travis McMichael, age 35, Greg McMichael, his uh, father, age 65, and their neighbor, William Rody Bryan, age 52, were all found guilty of felony murder in their unwarranted pursuit and subsequent shooting of Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was basically guilty of jogging in a white suburban area where these three white men found Arbery's presence to constitute a threat and acted upon it with lethal force. Travis, was, uh, Travis McMichael was also convicted of malice murder or intent to kill, and all three are still uh, still face federal hate crime charges and will probably receive life in prison, potentially without parole. Now, what I found troubling is that this murder initially went without any national attention. I remember this is being celebrated right now, especially in the South. It's like, oh, the South finally has woken up to justice. Uh, the South finally did got it right. I've read column and opinion after opinion about how important this verdict is. Now, what I find interesting is that if it wasn't for the actual ineptitude and stupidity of the defendants and their attorney, no criminal charges would have been brought up against this racist trio of would-be murderers. Uh, the police let them walk free and prosecutors didn't press charges at, at the start. In fact, one prosecutor, Jackie Johnson, has been indicted and is facing charges of shielding the suspects from the shooting and from the, from, from the actual uh, crime. The prosecutor that took over the case, Waycross District Attorney George Barnhill, justified the use of force in that incident as lawful as a lawful citizen's arrest in a letter to police. The system at this juncture in this story is not working, to go back to President Biden's uh, statement. Just to reiterate, no one was initially charged until 74 days after the murder, and arrests were finally made mostly as a response to national outrage emerging from a local radio station's release of footage showing the murderous pursuit, actual footage of the pursuit and the shooting, uh, which was ironically submitted to this local radio station by Greg McMichael, one of the defendants, and his attorney, who is right now not available for comment. They submitted this footage to the radio station in their minds to exonerate, to basically uh, address any potential lingering doubts that people might have had about their supposed innocence. Had these morons not tried to absolve themselves in the court of public opinion by releasing this tape, charges would never have been brought against them. Uh, national outrage would not have emerged. Uh, because the police were not cooperating with local journalists releasing information and the prosecutors were shielding the suspects. So this case seemed painfully obvious as another example of racist vigilantism uh, in the tradition of George Zimmerman's murder of Trayvon Martin. However, despite this obviousness, it took the stupidity of the actual suspects and their idiotic attorney's willingness to self-incriminate them 
that resulted in justice being pursued. Again, it seems that the victory was the result of extraordinary circumstances more than the normal functioning of our legal system. The system seemed intent on preventing any justice from being realized to the point of criminal cover-ups by the actual prosecutors assigned to the case. The glaring irony, again, is that despite the seemingly systemic cover-up, the jury needed only two days, I think two and a half days, to reach its verdict. So to the jury, it was painfully obvious. Apparently to the prosecutors and to police and everybody that was involved at the case, in the case at the time uh, and investigated it and found no crime to have been committed. So despite the verdict, my enthusiasm remains checked. So my first question, Stephen, is, is the verdict a product of bizarre circumstances or the result of the system working as President Biden is saying? Well, I mean, the, those those two things are not necessarily opposed to one another uh, for the system to work. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't even mean that humorously. Uh, there are many odd things that happen that lead to a criminal trial, uh, more than you would imagine, things that just you, you, uh, you only would have been aware of in, in movies at times. Now, in my personal trials, it hasn't been that interesting because uh, I'm not a public defender, but I have friends that are. But anyway, this is routine to have unusual circumstances that accompany uh, a lot of trials. Uh, and the system has a way of dealing with them for right or for wrong. I don't believe it often gets it right. And I mean simply not that there ought to be different rules, but I don't think that they're honest in their application of the existing rules. But, I, but let me just address finally, um, Biden, this is what presidents say, uh, anytime there's a verdict, because it's a constitutional guarantee in absence some obvious uh, visible evidence of, of corruption or anomaly. I mean, what can anybody say? This is what any good democratic citizen of the United States should say. Absent any any notion of tampering or perversion of the uh, of the system, the juries are right to have a right to do whatever they like. In order to just to counter that, uh, Stephen, I would say that the system didn't work. And that's painfully obvious. It took 74 days to bring charges against these three men. And that would have never happened had they not willfully submitted that footage to that local radio station, which went national. And then people across the nation were so outraged at the obviousness of what they saw on video, just like the Rodney King case decades ago, that, or, or in more recently, the uh, murder of George Floyd, that it was the national outrage that literally and motivated or forced the prosecutors to reinvestigate the case. And it was so corrupt and it was so dysfunctional that prosecutors that were in charge initially of the case are now being indicted themselves for covering it up. So how can we say that the system is working just because the verdict emerged as guilty, but there was obvious police and prosecutorial cover up and shielding of the suspects prior to that? Well, Assuming all that is true, there was in the end a guilty verdict for precisely what they did. And it was not really disputed. And it was not, as you correctly state, particularly difficult to arrive at. So uh, the system did work. Now, none of that is true if if one of your what if one of your premises is correct, that nothing but a inexplicable manifestation of this video by the by a defendant. And, and his lawyer, which appeared to me to be the sole evidence on which anybody was going to rely on, on a, uh, for on a verdict. I, I didn't see it, uh, but I, I heard witnesses and I did follow the trial and I heard summaries on the news. 
And and it and when I read the verdict and I heard their defenses and their cross examinations, it was clear I could deduce from that that the video was damning, and there was no way around certain things. And then the guy testified, uh, the guy who was alleged to have asked for favors from the former DA. And I could tell by his testimony, he was desperate and there was nothing else for him to say, except to hope that the good old boy network would uh, listen to him as a soldier that went down for their cause in, in, in some you know, uh, way that's plausible to utter in, in, in contemporary society. That's, that's what I saw. And I, I was certain it was going to be a guilty verdict on all of them. Uh, I had some doubts about uh, the 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 one guy who's uh, um, who can't remember who he was. He wasn't the father. Uh, he was the other defendant. I can't remember his name, but I thought he would be acquitted potentially, and he had been acquitted of some of the charges. And when the verdict was read on him, I realized that they had believed he had used his car to to uh, corner and restrict uh, Ahmad Arbery's escape. I, I didn't see that, but I, but I'm assuming that that is the only thing that video could have showed. It was it was damning evidence, and had that video never been submitted, those men would have never been charged with murder. Now, if that's true, if that's true, you're 100 percent right. But uh, you know, it would be a dispute between you and Biden about whether or not uh, you can uh, you know make that extrapolation. Fair enough. I think that the preponderance of evidence would be on my side to say that a guilty verdict in and of itself is not the beginning and the end of a legal investigation and that we need to pay attention to the totality of how that uh, verdict came to be came to take place uh, including the police investigation and the police's role in either covering it up or in offering the evidence that led to the guilty verdict and in this case the police were not cooperating and neither were the prosecutors it's almost like the court of public opinion forced them to actually do their jobs. That's what I would argue. Well, I mean, that is all true. Uh, that, uh, but that is also part of the system, isn't it? That I would the, say, that, I, and that, that, let me let me say, we elect judges, we elect prosecutors, and so the the public voice matters to judges and prosecutors. And because the judiciary has one role in society that includes public opinion and a serious uh, exercise of, of power in, in the, in the uh, franchise or for their offices, that's part of the system working. Again, yes, I, w- I would agree with that, but I would say that the term system is a very generous term in this case because system would include the people that were in charge of investigating and bringing forth those charges, and it should not require a spectacle of outrage at the national level in order to bring charges against three men who shot and killed someone who was jogging or in their neighborhood uh, and, and, and just to bring charges to see if they're guilty. It shouldn't take the spectacle of a national uh, outrage in order to make that happen. That should cool. be the result of police investigation and prosecutorial agreement with whatever evidence the police bring uh, forth. I mean, that to me is the system working. That is what, happened, what happened in this case is not the system working. It is, a, it is an extraordinary accumulation of circumstances. And I hear what you're saying. Every case has that to some degree. But this, is, this would have never happened as a current example of racial progress happening within our, within our legal system. To me, it speaks to the contrary. It speaks to the fact that we still have people that are so racist, they're literally willing to cover up murderers to allow them to escape if they kill the right body. 
Well, I mean, you're right. The, the system is meant to do the exact opposite of, of what you, you know, uh, described accurately about a failure of a dimension of the system. Um, and it, 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 I have no investment in, 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 in the term system and, and its scope, but except, except to advocate for Biden's position that we understand that when we create institutions and we elect people, we elect people who, are, have, who have faults. And there are ways of dealing with people's faults, including the one that you just described that happened in this case. And sometimes it does take as a, as a final safeguard public opinion to be outraged. It's a considered an integrated part of how the system is intended to work. And in this case, it appropriately influenced what appeared to be, let me, let me put it this way, appeared to be a lynching is what I was going to say. And I mean that much more seriously than, than, than one may think. I don't mean it as a metaphor. Nobody lynches anymore because the, the, the artifacts of lynching are just simply no longer socially relevant. We live in a gun culture. Just to add to your argument, though, President Biden himself, before he was President Biden, called it a lynching. When he saw the video, he goes, that, that's a lynching. That's, just, yes, that's a public lynching. He, he didn't know enough about it to, to mean it in the way that I mean right, it. Though. Right, right, right. No. Uh, and I mean it very specifically. Their defense was citizens' arrest. And it was the citizens' arrest power that arose out of the fugitive slave hunting. Right. And then when slavery left, it was uh, uh, the, these people who were suddenly, uh, there were militias that would go around. And the KKK and other populist racist groups developed from that. But that became part of the laws of states for precisely that reason. Right. Uh, and they were used, when I saw that defense, it occurred to me that uh, they, they were clearly guilty. They, they could not coordinate their racism with video evidence of the modern day. Uh, they mishandled it. I think when they sent that out, they just assumed there would be more sympathy for the good old boys trying to do the, the good old right thing that no one, nobody accepts anymore. But when I saw that, this is, this is what I mean. They counted on that privilege to root out un, un, uh, Black people with long, dirty toenails from their neighborhoods. And that's exactly what I was about to say. They even relied on the oldest of arguments in terms of criminalizing the body itself as unclean and therefore threatening just by its mere presence but in this they, case. That's just the, the long toenail reminds the jury he's a different race. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so just pivoting off of that because I think it's interconnected is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that just uh, ended in, uh, in Wisconsin. And that's the one that Biden came out and spoke publicly in favor of the verdict and in favor of the system working regardless of whether people found it uh, to be just. Um, and I know this case depended a lot on the prosecution's need to demonstrate that Rittenhouse did not act in reasonable self-defense, which is a really high bar. All in Wisconsin, if you, if you say that you did what you did uh, because you felt that your life was threatened, uh, then it's up to the prosecution to prove that your use of lethal force did not constitute reasonable self-defense, which is which is really which is difficult to prove. Um, and I've been reading from various uh, prosecutors and say, yeah, that's a really high bar to me. Now, nevertheless, I think that there were plenty of factors in this case that make it seem like Rittenhouse did qualify for a felony murder charge based on the fact that he crossed state lines from Illinois to Wisconsin. He lives really close to the border, but nevertheless, he crossed state lines uh, to instigate a confrontation with protesters uh, as a self-identified counter-protester, and that he owned a gun illegally at that time. He was too young to purchase the AR-15. I think a friend of him, 
A friend of his bought the rifle for him using a stimulus check of all things, which just shows to, goes to show how our government works in this country. And moreover, there was evidence uh, of plenty of bias, the violent intentions towards BLM protesters, like chats that Rittenhouse had with friends of his as he was watching people loot a specific store. He said in a chat that he wished he had his AR-15 or had an AR-15 because he would shoot the looters, uh, which again shows violent intent, uh, as well as uh, other violent confrontations that he had with women and stuff in his background that uh, the judge, in this case, uh, Judge Bruce Schroeder, uh, found to be irrelevant to the specific case, even though the prosecution was trying to uh, say that this spoke to the mindset that um, Rittenhouse had when he arrived at the scene, that it was not just accidental, that he had some kind of intention for going to Kenosha on that night. For many people, including legal experts across the political spectrum on both sides, right and left, the non-guilty verdict was not shocking in and of itself. But the reasoning and the after effects are considered disconcerting nevertheless to many people. Uh, in this case, there is no enthusiasm to curb because he was found not guilty. So uh, I'm kind of more confused and angry as to the reasoning behind the non-guilty verdict. It seems that the verdict has more to do with politics and justice, particularly the, just, the politics around the Second Amendment in the state of Wisconsin. It seems that in states like Wisconsin, you can carry a firearm to a public event, you can instigate a confrontation, and then kill someone while claiming self-defense, which is what Rittenhouse essentially did. Can you explain the logic behind this legal argument? Because I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, yeah, uh, it's very simple. Sorry. <laughs> is very simple a, a person has may exercise any right or perform any act that is not prohibited even if they're motivated with the hope that they may end up killing a black person over it wow that is they are allowed to do that and i can tell you in this case the politics here happened in charging a person who was clearly under any straightforward third year law student bar level exam question, not guilty of an assault. When I started watching the trial and I saw the defense cross-examine willing witnesses, uh, I knew there was simply no way anybody was going to convict him. The, the evidence was overwhelming. You can despise Kyle Rittenhouse, but if you accept, as the jury would have been required to accept, that if he had a legal right to defend himself under the circumstances, and those circumstances appeared to justify it, even if you don't like uh, the political currents that brought them into uh, contact with one another, it was clear. This was, this was not a difficult case. It was charged solely to appease a uh, political constituency. So you don't think any charges should have been brought against Rittenhouse in the first place? There were none to bring. The, the one charge that they brought, the misdemeanor charge, got dismissed on what's called judgment of acquittal that the judge listened to the evidence after the close of the state's case and said, even if everything that you, uh, even if the jury believes everything you say is true, you don't meet the elements of a crime. There were no charges to be brought. And by the way, let us remember, this is the same thing that happened in the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore. Marilyn Mosby immediately charged a bunch of police officers with no evidence whatsoever. And there were no convictions. One, there was one hung jury on the bizarre theory that he gave a rough ride to somebody with the hope that he would kill somebody. It was nonsense. And he was had a hung jury. And he was the first tried. Everybody else was either acquitted or their cases were dismissed. That's what happens when, when, when you 
when you try to import politics into a system that operates according to non-political rules. Now, I think the political rules that are influencing the legal system here, though, are based around this notion of gun rights and this emerging philosophy of you are able to, you can instigate a confrontation, literally, and then shoot someone and kill them and claim self-defense, even though you went to that specific location in order to initiate a confrontation. Yes, but you cannot initiate a confrontation and kill somebody in self-defense. One of the instructions a court would give would be that a person who was the aggressor has no right to self-defense. And by the way, that was something they had to, that they used in the other case we just talked about, Armand Arbery, mm-hmm. that they were convicted because they had no right for self-defense because they were the initial aggressors. It was clear to me from the cross-examinations that there were ideological squabbles in which Kyle Rittenhouse ran away from, no matter how much you despise whether or not ideologically he provoked them, but he ran away. And from that moment on, he was besieged until, until one was injured and two were dead. That's the evidence of this case. It was None of this was disputed. No, none of this was disputed, which brings me to some of the politics that happened inside of the courtroom. So, so there were some bizarre moments that many people say could have influenced the verdict, although, as you state and many legal experts have stated, this was going to be a very difficult case to win for the prosecution because of the self-defense laws in Wisconsin. But it seems to be like there were politics uh, that were playing out in the courtroom and that Bruce, uh, that Bruce Froder's uh, behavior from uh, like allowing Rittenhouse to be an actual actor in the theater of the case itself by allowing him to pull the names out of the tumbler to exclude certain jurors, which is highly unusual. Usually you ask a clerk, a court clerk or the judge does them themselves or a member of the jury, but you don't usually ask the defendant to participate in those type of uh, practices inside of the courtroom during their own trial, because then it could frame the defendant uh, in a different light. Uh, and also the, dis- the fact that the judge dismissed the gun possession charge, right? The fact that he uh, used essentially what are you know uh, outdated hunting laws in order to excuse a 17-year-old illegally possessing an assault rifle or an AR-15, something it's called a long handgun in the state of Minnesota, uh, and taking that to a protest. Uh, yeah, that was the charge that you were talking about, the misdemeanor charge that was dismissed by the judge, and that was his personal call. No, no, no. It was not his personal call. Uh, it, well, let me, let, me re- let me say that it can be. A judge, a judge has to give no reason why he dismisses any account. He, at that point, can say, if for any reason, without having to disclose it, I find the defendant not guilty of everything, and walk away from the bench, and it's as good as the jury did it. That's not why he did it here. There was simply a want of proof. The gun, in order to be illegal, had to be a certain length. Yeah. And I saw this discussion, and it wasn't, and there's nothing you can do about that. Right. right. If, if This is why we have measurements because so nobody can be made guilty of having the wrong measurement or a compliant one. And I understand that, but it was a stretch because at the time that he purchased it, he was underage and they basically had to interpret the law as if though he was a son out hunting with his father. That's the only reason that law exists. It's it may hunt- be, but it, it, it's, it's, simply, an ob- it's not 
it does not matter. I or I uh, his lawyer, I would have been derelict and kicked myself in the butt for not relying on a law that exonerates my client of a charge. I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with the validity of the defense. I'm just trying to highlight the judge's role in all of this and to say that as a judge who's up for re-election, it seems that he was he played an active role in bringing in Kyle less as a defendant and more as an actor or agent in sure, their sure. own case. And first of all, you're right to call it exactly what you did. That is a fair characterization, the, the sort of the bizarreness of it. That does not happen. And when it does happen, it happens uh, for the state, not for the defendant. This was a very, very unusual. I bet you almost no defense lawyer can count one case or maybe two cases where, where they got any kind of help from the judge on because of a, a, an affectionate relationship to the the image of the uh, defendant. No, this was, this was, this was, uh, I mean, here's the problem though. I'm a defense lawyer. If the judge starts behaving that way to the state openly, I get a, I get a mistrial. I get a reversed on appeal. I can appeal everything. The state can't, the state can only appeal very, they have to show that this court's ruling, this, what this court was doing, they can't ask for a mistrial. They can ask for a mistrial. Uh, they can, but they have to show this court's ruling warrants a mistrial and the, and the higher courts are reluctant to do that when, the, when, a judge is presiding over anyway. But yes, I have never in my life seen a judge go so far as to the worst offense is not even the one that you mentioned, was to in front of the jury, ask ask the a witness to give character evidence about himself before he testified, and then insisted to the jury that he be applauded for that. Even if it even if it was past performance, that that issue could not have been raised by the state. And so the judge brought it in and there was, I have no idea whether the man intended it or not. It makes no matter. That was something that was enormously helpful, that the benefit of which I have never received in my career as a defense lawyer. And so that kind of brings me back to the notion that the legal system is working, because for me, that could possibly qualify as the good old boys club way of trying to treat a young good old boy. Sure. Well, is it, it, it clearly was. And I understood exactly uh, what the reasons is. This is an old man from a generation in Wisconsin that um, had colleagues in the Klan down there. This is this is who he is. Nobody would go out of their way in a controversial case on television to show that kind of extraordinary favoritism to a, a defendant in his courtroom. Judges are terrified of doing that because everybody's supposed to be afraid of the defendant. And if the judge and, and the other the other point is this. The judges are normally not willing to be that nice to a defendant because it offends the representative of the people who elected him. When 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 a judge grants a defense objection, he's ruling against the representative of his voters themselves. And, and it seems why. like, yeah, this judge was more attentive to his constituents than he was to the actual, let's say, the pro the proper protocols of how a case should be handled in the court. I can almost assure you, if you talk to lawyers who have tried cases in front of him where he had defendants he despised, he uh, he, he probably did a, a lot of uh, similar things, but more muttering and, and, and under his breath <laughs> until they were convicted. And then he can have his uh, day at sentencing. I, I know this. This judge was a clown. He reminded me of the Minnesota judges that I've appeared in front of. 
who are from this jurisdiction. You know, Minnesota doesn't import really smart uh, cosmopolitan people. They import people who inherited wealth from land and then got the education and they can trace their name back several generations. This wow. is this is this is who our judges are in Minnesota. Wow. That is definitely uh, an old school uh, way of uh Granting people power, let's just say almost aristocratic, like pulling a sword out of a rock, but having your parents help you do it. The thing that bothered me about this case, Stephen, are, is the optics. Uh, and we, uh, this is the last thing I want to talk about. So Rittenhouse uh, was found not guilty. There was an immediate GOP celebration around this because uh, many conservatives uh, were in agreement uh, that he never should have been brought to trial. Former President Trump famously said he shouldn't have ever faced this. He shouldn't have ever even been in a courtroom in the first place. So now he is the poster boy for Black Lives Matter counter-protesting. He's a poster boy for gun rights. He's a poster boy for outright vigilantism, which is what the three men in Georgia were found guilty of in the Arbery case, right? Since his trial ended, Rittenhouse has appeared on the Tucker Carlson show, where Tucker Carlson reaffirmed the fact that Rittenhouse is a nice young man basically wanted to reinforce that character trait in Rittenhouse. He was invited to Mar-a-Lago by a former President Trump, where he was again congratulated and told that he was a very nice young man who never should have gone through a trial in the first place. Uh, in other words, no crime was committed there. And Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is now wanting to put forth a bill that would award Rittenhouse a Congressional Gold Medal. All of this seems to counter the supposed justice achieved in the previous two cases, in my opinion, in terms of the progress that the system has achieved so far in terms of racial justice. Uh, or political justice in general, and the ramifications of those cases. In other words, the system is working. I understand that in terms of the letter of the law and in terms of whether or not Rittenhouse committed a crime upon being attacked, I hear what you're saying and I understand the legalities around that. What I think people are not paying attention to are some of the things that we just, or people, some people are paying attention to or debating are some of the things we talked about the judge's behavior, the way it's framed, the way it might be connected to traditions uh, around these uh, jurisdictions and some of these places. But what, what concerns me is that the message is now, you cannot, not only can you show up to an event armed to the teeth with an AR-15 and other weapons if they're legal, uh, you can instigate a confrontation so long as you're not the aggressor, but you can force someone into engaging into a confrontation. And as soon as that person gets physical with you, you can shoot them dead and claim self-defense, even though you traveled miles to go to an event that you knew was already heated at, with the intention of instigating and escalating the situation to the point of physical confrontation so that you can find an excuse to kill somebody, especially if you are a right-wing extremist who tend to be the people that follow that kind of playbook. Do you agree or disagree that this could be one of the uh, invisible, not invisible, but kind of like these dog whistles, these uh, messages that are communicated underneath the headlines in well, between? But, but, but let's be clear that Black Lives Matter got what it asked for. It got a prosecution. It has no right to a verdict. This is, this is the difference between politics and the judiciary. There is no way you can televise a, a complete uh, ignorance of the Constitution and the rules. 
So what happened is they forced the prosecution and they got exactly the hero that Trump and for the reasons Trump says he should not have been charged. You cannot simply abuse the system to satisfy a political desideratum. And the evidence was 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 this was a terrible political decision to charge him because it has made the right credible that this is what the left will do. And they're right in this instance. They're right in that instance. Don't use the justice system and verdicts to enforce a, a political agenda. It doesn't work. I don't mean it doesn't work in the sense that it's dishonest. It literally won't work. You will not get from it. The decision to charge him was improvident. There was no way to circumvent the rules that would prevent the jury from finding that out and acquitting them. So my question would be, do, do you think that what essentially ended up protecting Rittenhouse in this case was the way that the laws are written regarding self-defense in states like Wisconsin? Or would this have probably been the case in other states like, I don't know, California? I don't think it would have mattered. Let me say this. There's only, I've done about 100 jury trials. That's a rough estimate. Never counted after a certain number, but, I, but I'm close to that. And I say that because it, it, um, uh, an assault uh, is, is, a, is a standard part of any private criminal defense uh, lawyer's uh, fee base. You get a lot of assaults. And the only, I've tried lots of cases, the only count of any criminal case that I have won in every single instance I have tried it is assault. And I, and I don't know for sure, but I would guess in every single case, my defense was self-defense. Self-defense, and this is an old, ancient, as ancient as the last name Grigsby, probably the you know, 14th century, an old law. Uh, and it reflects you know, ordinary, easily understandable, enduring social principles. You have a right to defend yourself. And, and it's very simply this, is that when you have any evidences at, at all of self-defense, any, it can be a single question or a blur in a photo in which you're willing to make an argument, this is the key to self-defense, then the state must disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, in any case, assault or anything else, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is meant to be high enough to let many otherwise completely guilty people walk away. It is designed to, to, to simply to make convicting innocent people impossible. I can tell you this, 97% of all the cases charged result in convictions, either most by plea, uh, other by trial, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean that there are as many trial uh, not guilty as guilty. We don't know anything about it. 97, so virtually they get it right. In my own experience, I have almost never encountered somebody that I believed was totally innocent. In the one instance, I was certain of it. The prosecutor was also convinced and dismissed, okay? That is the system, and that is my experience of the system. Now, there, in most cases, I do not feel my clients have gotten a fair trial. And this is the danger of the system, that the judge in Wisconsin would have acted to the exact opposite uh, effect in, in, in these cases. And when politics can be used to, used instrumentally or to make an instrument of the justice system, we don't, we don't have whatever break the justice system, whatever independence it had, is lost and it becomes a pure instrument of who won the last election. This is a dangerous, dangerous um, uh, power. We're not going to hear from the people in Charlottesville anymore. This power is enlarging as we speak. I just tried two cases in Hennepin County post Derek Chauvin. And uh, this is anecdotal, but I got a very, very strong sense that the institution of the of, of accusation, its eminence has been enhanced in the minds of the public. 
because they believed the system worked when it when it plucked that one that one murderer out of a, out of a host of murderers and said, "See, we're fair." And so now that power, if it's more efficient, if it's if its honesty is enhanced, that is going to be used disproportionately against black people who are going to jail. That's how it's going to be used, and it's going to because black people occupy the numerically largest number of um, um, uh, overrepresented people in in the in the system. It's not exclusively blacks, but that could vanish. And it could be somebody else in that place. And that's the problem. And, and this is not being remedied here. In fact, people are complaining about the verdict as opposed to understanding the, the, the judiciary has no power for social change. It just doesn't have that power. It can regulate the status quo. If I may, then some people would argue that the status quo is already so racist that if it had been a Black defendant carrying an AR, 15 in that situation in Wisconsin, they probably would, would have been shot dead by police officers or had the, had the crowd that stormed the Capitol on January 6th been uh, a crowd of black and brown bodies, there's no way they would have been able to breach it the way that this one crowd on January 6th did. Because at the end of the day, race still plays a role in the courtroom, whether it's lawful or not. That's correct, because white people don't have the appearance of an entire subclass of people that they, an appearance that they share with the subclass. So it doesn't matter when the majority of people who look like you are poor and historical victims of racism, it becomes a matter of simple navigational rationality to simply be aware of the appearance, because it may, in that case, represent a probability of something else. This, so it makes it rational to be racist. The problem is not to use the courts to say we've we convict that we now want to treat Kyle Rittenhauer as we've historically mistreated black people. The point is not to not to mistreat people, and and so it's not to, to sort of bemoan that he got Kyle Rittenhouse got away. It's a, these some people are being accused disproportionately and suffering disproportionately, and that's because you have to under you remedy the underlying social. Uh, matters. And that's why when BLM insists on prosecution, I don't trust them to, that they've, I don't trust that they've understood the issue. I understand what you're saying. So in order for the law to change, if we want justice over the laws that exist right now, it's going to have to happen socially first and then be legislated after the fact. It can, it's never going to take place vice versa. In other words, the law will reform itself without any social pressure is what you're saying. Well, I mean, listen, how one does it, I have no idea. I, I simply, I will, I will punt to Adorno who says exactly that. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, I simply have, I am able to analyze what simply exists before me. And to finally quote Marx is that I can, I can be certain of utopia. I can be certain of it because I know for sure it is not this. Yeah, I was about to say, and, and as far as legal utopias, regardless of the verdicts that happened in the last couple of weeks, I would say this is not it. In, in the right world, I don't believe the criminal justice system would be the first recourse to a rational social organization. It seems to me to simply be a displacement of a lot of issues that are primarily about access to the, the the world's resources, it's as simple as that. If you if there wasn't that initial dispute, there wouldn't be a legal system to settle subsets of that dispute. Absolutely, private property and its discontents. 
Yeah, this is this is the system. Even 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 the socialist Black Lives Matter was would have been perfectly happy uh, about a guilty verdict for Rittenhouse. Period. Simply because they wrote it. Go ahead. No, I said for that reason alone that they wrote it, they would have been happy with uh, putting a man in prison for for the rest of his life. And what you're saying is that regardless of how we may feel politically and ideologically about Rittenhouse and his motivations for being there that night in Kenosha, what you're saying is that we cannot manipulate the law to fit our own political agendas because at the end of the day, that manipulation of the law could come back to haunt your own side or you yourself personally. There, there is there is that pragmatic reason for not doing it. The other thing is, is that the, the 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 legal system serves a different master and has a different purpose than what it's being invested with. The verdicts are not totemic. If you understood what they were and how they occur and have been through the boring, relatively bureaucratic procedure that produces them without much fanfare uh, and, and, a, and a lot of just boring, redundant, repetitious material, you wouldn't you would understand what was going to happen in this trial. From the beginning, yeah, and you that understand make, it. Yeah, it people don't understand it. That's all. I understand. I, I get that. I wasn't always a lawyer. I mean, in fact, I wasn't even a guy who wanted to be a lawyer. So I didn't. I wasn't one of these guys who sort of like, oh, I kind of like legal shows and I like legal issues. I had no interest at all. I had. I had Robert Crawley's opinion of of, of lawyers. You know, from I don't know if you, were, you saw Downton Abbey, but uh, Robert Crawley is a, an aristocrat, and he. And, by a, by a stroke of bad luck, he, in, his in fortune goes to a lawyer and he can't believe a man works every day. That's what I felt. But I am a lawyer and I simply know when you, when you are honest and rigorous about the system itself, there's a, you realize you have very little control over yeah. anything. That it's the law and the facts that control. And I'm telling you, it is almost impossible to change the law and the facts, except so in minor, minor tinkering that pleases a lobbying constituency here or there. So Enlightenment Society, just to stick with the Dorno for a little bit, Enlightenment Society punted the questions and problems of justice and ethics into a legal system that is now basically a bureaucracy that functions around the notion of private property. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, you know, that's exactly what I meant to say, that, <laughs> that it is exactly as you said it. Wow. Well, that's uplifting. That, that At least somehow, just the, to amplify that somehow justice is limited to a verdict that either involves putting a person in a cage, which has a checkered history and actual history to, to revive that as, as a functioning, laudable destination for people who have uh, are guilty of an injustice. This is insane. But 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 it's the system that's there, and we as individuals, including myself, who has tried to fight it in various ways over the years, it is. It, I have absolutely have not influenced it. I have not changed it. The verdicts I have obtained are largely the result of chance and luck. And if I am honest with what I have done from in my life, that I have made uh, caging human beings seem socially acceptable. Oh, by, that's by providing a social service to the courts. That is uh, the, one of the most honest uh, dis job descriptions I've ever heard from an attorney. I just want to congratulate you on being one of the. If if I if I, I I I'm an attorney, I'm not insane. I, <laughs> I simply look back on what has happened. When you're young, you know, when bad things are happening, then some good things will happen, 
and you and you you misunderstand it because you think that you're playing a major role in this. But I can tell you, after a very difficult retrial of a drunk driving double homicide up in Brainerd, Minnesota, in which the evidence favored me because of a a, a very unusual revelation in court, the reconstructing witness for the state had made an error, and I knew it had been an error because my witness told me. And so he, I cross-examined him from his own book, and he read the contrary opinion from his book, and he said, yeah, you're right. Maybe it didn't happen like I said. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I gave a, just this robust closing argument that the state is a conceding doubt, and then they came back hung, six to six, the second time. They were hung the first time, hung this time, but it was getting closer to acquittal. And I asked the jury foreperson afterwards, you know, about what happened. And I just remember asking the question, did anything I say in closing argument assist the jury? And he said, very politely, he was a very polite guy. He said, I'm sorry, what did you, what did you say in closing argument? So I realized I had been superfluous. And they had talked, listen, he told me, they talked about things that they were forbidden from talking about. Like, is this guy a good guy? Does he really contribute to society? They told me this, and I know how it works. And that's also a sense of powerless because you can't really count on them. So the only thing you can do is humbly ask them. This is all you can do as a lawyer is to humbly ask a jury to simply perform the duty as they understand it from my argument, prosecutor's argument, and the court's instructions. That's why every jury should be required to watch 12 Angry Men before they become jurors. That's just cultural studies argument. Apparently you don't like that movie. Okay, you sorry. Have, you also have to remember, I know I don't like these movies in which innocent people get acquitted after suffering a lot of misfortune, which brings me to one point you made before is that the acquittal is going to encourage people to do what Kyle Rittenhauer did. And I assure you, nobody wants to make that argument at the cost of their life to a jury. Absolutely nobody. Nobody is doing things for which you can be charged with first degree murder. They're parading him around as a hero because nobody will ever repeat that ever again. That will never happen. It's the worst thing in the world to be guilty and convicted. We understand, you know, you've committed the crime. You still don't want to go to prison. You still suffer more. <laughs> it, that doesn't go away. You don't say to yourself, yeah, I have it coming. I'm okay with it. That doesn't happen. But to have to go through that, and with, if he didn't have the funding of a bunch of racist supporters, he may not have, or he may have. That almost looked like the case the local, the local drunk public defender could have won. But that was, it was several million dollars. And I can tell you, when he testified, I knew right away he had been prepared appropriately. I don't mean to, his attorneys did a very, very good job, as they're supposed to. There was nothing about them that you really noticed. There's no personality. There was no controversy. There were no loud objections. They had a theory. They were sticking to the game plan. They didn't deviate from it. And they knew they were going to win. Yeah. They, didn't, they weren't baited into anything. Yeah. And then they, then they found out that, that, that now they had a judge who was going to give them anything they asked for that he could credibly say to an audience. Yeah. Well, I will venture uh, uh, the most despicable of bets and say that I do believe this is going to inspire other people. Mass shooters usually, not that this was a mass shooting, but mass shooters really don't need inspiration. Rittenhouse was already a t-shirt prior to the verdict. I believe that this is going to amplify the heroism behind this vigilantism in the sense of People showing up to events armed to the teeth and not afraid to engage in confrontations anymore because they know they can use their weapons freely after the written but, but that, Yes. I mean, and, and let, let's assume that, that there is far more plausible evidence for the outcome 
And I'll even go so far as to say, let's assume just for purposes of my argument that it's a certainty people imitate that. That is not something the legal system is is able to do anything about. It, what, so what should we do? Uh, Gun laws. So what should we do? Have the judge convict people who aren't guilty under the law just to prevent that? Make no, a no. Sacrifice of a person. That's what no. they're asking for. No, I think this is what motivates Congress to go re-examine gun laws in the United States. Because what this is essentially saying is that if it's it's almost encouraging people to go buy guns. <laughs> it is. Everybody's going to yeah, want one now. Exactly. Like, hey, yeah. You believe that I can go to I can cross state lines and shoot three BLM protesters? Yeah. No, but that is 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 why he's a hero. He's right. mobilized people. And by the way, let's not forget, it's because political pressure forced the prosecution. Yeah. That pressure did whatever whatever negative consequence you're talking about here, BLM caused it. Wow, that's, that's, that's a controversial stance to take, Stephen, but I see exactly what you're saying. And I'm not sure I disagree with you because what you're saying essentially is that by turning it into a spectacle of so-called justice, what they did is that they reinforce the fact that the law is on Kyle's side and always will be regardless if it's Kyle or someone else. I, I mean it even much more humbly than that, is right. that he was charged uh, on evidence that was not of, of a crime. He, there was no probable cause once you... Listen, I, I was shocked that the entire thing was on video. Every single second, you knew where everybody was very precisely. No one disputed what happened. Once you, but and once a jury is properly instructed on unreasonable doubt and self-defense, there is no other rational conclusion. That the court of appeals would have acquitted him had that been the case. It just simply uh, was re, was wrong, and it was that. What this is what people don't understand. That was a political act to charge him. That was the political act that was totally unnecessary that caused him to be a hero. And it strategically backfired, is what you're saying. Absolutely, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it backfired. I think to a certain extent that supposes, you know, uh, they're not just groping and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, it's just Fair blind enough. groping. This this political pressure. Fair enough. But but the main thing is is that this is this ought to be far more disturbing when an institution caves in like that and 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 wants to pervert the law for 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 an unelected unelected, you know, dark money source of, of, of publicity. Anybody could fulfill that function. And that and that's what you do when you when you allow political connections to the legal system. Now, I'm not naive enough to not to not be aware that there are already many, but this this is these are the forces that corrupt the system. All of them. Well Stephen, you've given me and I'm sure listeners and viewers plenty to think about and to mull over regarding the differences between the law and what we perceive to be as justice or just. Sounds like we still have some work to do as a society on that front. Uh, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with uh, viewers and listeners, Stephen, or anything you'd like to tell them about yourself? Maybe Adorno Talks is coming back. I'm not sure. Well, what about Adorno? I caught that at the very end there. Uh, is the podcast coming back at any time? Or no? Here, here's no. Here's the thing. Um, I, I I'm not bringing it back. It wasn't that interesting to most of the viewers. It was interesting to me because I got to interview, especially the the first guy. I was. You want to describe first what we're talking about? Because most people sure, are like, I, what? I, um, I have a Facebook page called Adorno Studies. It uh, over about ten years. It it's got about um, five five and a half thousand members, and we have lively discussions about Adorno. 
and I, you know, I've gotten to know real uh, Adorno scholars uh, who are on there, and non-Adorno scholars who are also very, very bright and 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 very smart about a, a variety of issues. But anyway, I just decided to see if I could make it interesting, and I did a couple of podcasts. I, I interviewed one person with whom I'd had a public kind of a you know polemical dispute, but you know I you know it's a podcast. And he probably thought I was going to be mean, but he was willing to do it anyway. But I wasn't, and he was a he was a he was a pleasure. Uh, he was a pleasure. He was wrong, just like I thought. But he was a pleasure. And then there was a discussion that occurred in which I did another podcast. And I, I had enough experience at this point to ask that it be Stuart Walton. He always gave the most sober, perfect remarks about everything all the time in anything that he ever said. And I interviewed him and he was exactly that way. I have never. He answered questions just through his recitation of texts that I'm intimately familiar with that summarize them in a way that I wasn't able to summarize them. And he sort of solved a lot of riddles for me. And he's really the best exegete of Adorno that I've, that I've ever heard. By the way, he wrote a book uh, long after I was out of college, which had it been available, I wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have taken me 20 years. What was the book called? I, I can't remember what it is. His name is Stuart Walton. He is the clearest, most accurate um, student of Adorno I know. And, he, and it's interesting because he came at Adorno through Samuel Beckett. He was interested in Beckett and Adorno had a lot to say about Beckett. Yes. And, and then he became in you know, no, notes on literature in case you're interested listeners and viewers notes on literature volume one. I believe Adorno has a couple of essays on Beckett in there. Oh, but he talks about Beckett everywhere. Uh, yeah. he, his aesthetic theory was going to be dedicated to Beckett and they knew each other in real life. And in fact, um, uh, Beckett openly uh, disputed Adorno's claim about an artifact and or a prop in one of his plays. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they so they 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 knew each other. And there was this there was this one was the true artist who didn't care about philosophy. And one was the philosopher who cared about art. Mm. And and um, I don't think Beckett could understand or wouldn't concede to Adorno the pertinence of philosophy to a work of art anyway. But it was a fruitful it was a fruitful disagreement. But he came at Adorno through Beckett. And uh, he understands that dimension of Adorno, that sort of um, almost sober, tragic there's no, there's no strong affective dimension to Adorno's writing. There is an aphoristic intelligence to it, and and that suffices as sufficient beauty to state the truth as 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 accurately as possible about the matter he's talking about. Yeah. Anyway. Minima, minima moralia. That's that's how you get to that kind of perspective, right? But Very this, honest. But this guy Stuart Walton, he was he was the clearest, and after him, it was almost like. Um, there was nothing that was unilluminated in Adorno for me because I had solved the last couple of riddles to a, what I understand now as, a, as just a very clear system. Fantastic. So we'll probably have to bring you back to discuss some of that stuff and maybe uh, you know bring back some of those chats from the uh, Facebook conversations you had around that general theme. I don't know Steve, if they're appropriate because I was often informal and nasty to people. Sorry. <laughs> well, thankfully you weren't nasty today. And uh you were a pleasure to have on the very informative, very knowledgeable takes on some uh, controversial verdicts that have taken place in the last couple of weeks across the U.S. Uh, thank you for your insights on the legal system and thank you for educating us as to why these verdicts were correct, uh, at least following the letter of the law as it's written, and also for informing us about why politics cannot be adjudicated in a courtroom necessarily, or you're not going to win based on your politics. You're going to win or lose according to what the law says. You are welcome, Dr. Gallego. Am I wrong on that summary, Stephen? No, absolutely. Okay. Right. Just wanted to double check. Uh, 
Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, again, I hope to have you in the future so we can talk some more Adorno specifically. And Very good. I look forward Utopia. to it. Right. Well, thank you, Stephen. Bye-bye. And that will do it for this episode of The Identity Paradox. Uh, again, I learned a lot from uh, our guest, Stephen Grigsby, and uh, his takes on these uh, three cases. Uh, I definitely understand now why certain verdicts uh, came out the way they did, regardless of their ethical uh, or ideological consequences. And uh, I think that uh, Stephen has given us plenty to think about in terms of society's responsibility to justice and our propensity to punt or to hand over that responsibility to a legal system that is in many ways accountable to us. So if we want justice in the world, we're the ones that are going to have to make it happen and not rely on a court system. So just more things to think about. Thank you for joining us in this episode of The Identity Paradox and uh, hope to see you uh, next time. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's. Thanks.